As Pastor Craig mentioned, my name is Jessica Carter. I'm the Minister of Preaching and Teaching here at Bethany. Um, It's my honor to bring you the word of the Lord this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer before we begin? Holy and righteous Father, the world has not known you, but we have known you through your Son, Jesus Christ. This morning, will you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to your truth? Will you let your saying sink down deep within our ears? If we've committed sins, we ask you to forgive them and help us to lay aside the cares and the weights and the concerns of this life, that we might be attentive to your word and walk in obedience to your commands. You are gracious, O Lord, to bring us together each week that we might worship you in peace and in comfort. God, that we might adore you without fear or concern. And we thank you for the opportunities and the blessings you've given us here. The entrance of your word brings light, Father, and we pray that you will expound on your word so that all may hear and understand. Thank you for the grace you've provided to us, for we ask these things in the name of Jesus, not because of any righteousness that we possess or because of any good works that we have done, but we ask you in his name, for him you will accept. Thank you for your grace this morning, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. The vision that John had on the Isle of Patmos was a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation that Christ is the fulfillment of all the things of which the prophets had spoken. And like all visions, it was supernatural. John heard a voice behind him telling him to write to the seven churches. It sounded like a trumpet. And he turned around to look and saw a glorified Christ. Christ with hair that was white like wool, eyes like a flame of fire, walking in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. And he fell at Christ's feet as if he was dead. And Christ stretched forth his right hand and touched him, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Then he told John again to write and explain to him the vision of the seven churches, uh, of the seven golden candlesticks and the seven uh, stars that were in Christ's right hand. Now, when it comes to these sorts of ancient prophetic visions, similar to what John had, uh, there are sort of certain elements that God wants to convey. One is often of coming judgment, which we see throughout the book of Revelation. Judgment is coming, the final judgment and other judgments besides. We learn about things that are in the mind of God, that God understands and knows that people are unaware of. We learn about uh, things to come, whether related to judgment or not. And we also learn about the character and attributes of God. And the final piece that we learn and begin to understand when we look at these sorts of ancient prophetic visions is symbolism. And you see on the screen uh, a replica of the lampstand. This is from Israel. Uh, Someone posted it online. And this is a replica of what the golden lampstand would have looked like. So when John had a vision of Christ walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, there would have been seven of these. And there are some things that I'm going to explain to you about the lampstand in terms of symbolism. Uh, Just to start with, this was the lampstand that that stayed. Can can you all see that clearly? Okay. Um, The lampstand was in what's called the holy places within the temple. Um, Also the tabernacle, but I'm going to focus on the temple for purposes of this sermon. It was right outside of the area where the holiest of all was, where the high priest would enter once a year uh, on the Day of Atonement. And as you see, it kind of resembles a tree. 
doesn't it? And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. Now, it was made of gold. All of the items that were in this part of the temple were made of gold because they were closer to the presence of God. Um, And the high priest would take care of this and some of the other implements within the temple, right? The high priest would trim the lamp, make sure there was sufficient oil in it. And the high priest would do these sorts of things with all of the different areas, uh, all the different items that were in that area within the temple. And uh, so this is uh, when, when John, as I said, had this vision of Christ walking in the midst of seven of these. It's really a fulfillment of what the temple foreshadowed. As I mentioned, in the temple, the high priest would go in and take care of all of those different items within the holy places area. So there's a table with showbread, there's the golden lampstand, and so forth. And when John turns and has a vision of Christ walking in the midst of seven of them, this tells us, because seven is often in scripture the number of fulfillment, that this is the fulfillment of what was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Before we had a high priest of the house of Aaron walking around one golden lampstand. And now we have the fulfillment of that, the son of God, walking in the midst of seven of them. So now we're seeing come to fruition what God initially intended to convey. And this will be important as we go along. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit about what the lampstand means. Um, And so I'll give you the, there's a slide here uh, with a verse from Psalms. Uh, And let me just give you a brief description of sort of how it looks. I can't read it back there. It's a little bit far. Uh, Oh, I can. Uh, Then you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Six branches shall go out from its sides. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms in the one branch, a bulb and a flower. And three cups shaped like almond blossoms in the other branch, a bulb and a flower. So this gives you a sense of how it looks. It's intended, if we could go back to the photo of the lampstand, it's intended to look as if it's part of uh, something that's growing and living. And again, we'll talk more about what that means. Now, the scripture has uh, a number of sayings that relate to this lampstand that I think are worth exploring briefly in this introduction. The first is from Psalms, where it says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Most of you are familiar with this verse. Well, this word lamp is similar, uh, is the same Hebrew word that's used in the lampstand. When it talks about the different, uh, there's actually seven. When you look at the lampstand, you sort of see seven of them across. (laughs) Tried to give you a picture. Um, Each one of those individual things is called a lamp. And that's what's being referred to here. So there's a connection between these two. And there's one more verse also um, that I'd like to read from, I think it's from 2 Corinthians. It should be the next verse. Which is, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the first thing that I want to describe in terms of how the lamp, what the lampstand symbolizes is that it symbolizes the witness of the gospel. When, when we talk about the word of God and the truth of God, when we talk about being the light of the world as the church, the light that we have that no one else in the world has, and I don't just mean Bethany, I mean the church writ large, is that we know the truth concerning the Son of God. That is, in fact, the light of the world, and this witness is of the gospel. So this is why when you hear of the church being described as seven golden lampstands, right? Each lampstand representing a church. This is why. This is the only way people get light. Because in the temple, the lampstand was the only source of light. It was the only way that the high priest could see what was going on. So all of these things are tied in. The second thing about the golden lampstand is that it represents the tree of life. 
You heard that description that I just read, uh, read to you from the scriptures where it talks about how there were flowers and bulbs and things like that. If you look at the description of the temple, it becomes a little bit clearer. If you could put that up. Of the temple. Uh, the scripture that I have. Okay, of the temple. Thank you. Uh, there was cedar on the house within, carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. There was no stone seen. Then he carved all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers, inner and outer sanctuaries. This is a brief description of the temple. Inside of the temple, the walls were carved with cherubim and with fruits, uh, pomegranates and flowers and all kinds of things that give you very much the impression of a garden. And so that if you're in the temple, you're seeing all of these different woodworking and things around on the walls that show you that it's, it's a replica, in a sense, of the Garden of Eden. There are many other connections between the temple and the garden. This is one. And so in the midst of the garden, as we know, there was a tree of life. And so we see in the midst of the temple, the golden lampstand, which very much resembles a tree. And so there's another scripture that I'd like to read, um, if we could go to the next one. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so here again, we see this notion of the, the light and life being tied together. And so the, in this sense, the lampstand represents the tree of life. And so I want to draw all of these things through. This is a little bit of background to the letter in the, to the church of Ephesus that Pastor Craig preached on last week. You remember that Christ took them to task, saying that they had left their first love. And that if they didn't repent and do the first works, what would he do? Remove their lampstand out of its place. Now, Pastor Craig talked last week about how they'd left their first love and the need to love one another and to love people outside the church and to care for them. I'm going to add one more layer to that, which is their love needed to be manifested in witnessing for the gospel. Again, if a lampstand doesn't give out light, what does the high priest do? I was telling you that in the Old Testament, the high priest took care of the things that were in the temple. If a lampstand wasn't giving light, the high priest would simply remove it and add another one. Same thing he's talking about to the, in the letter to the church at Ephesus. This lampstand, this church, is not giving light. They aren't witnessing for the gospel. So what good is this lamp? I'll remove it, which is what he was threatening to do to them, to get rid of that church. And so that's the first instance when I talk to you about the lampstand representing the witness of the gospel. The second thing is found at the end of the letter to the, uh, the church at Ephesus. What did Christ say to them at the end? To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. So here again, there's that, another connection that Christ is saying to them that th there's more to this than they think. They, they're, for whatever reason, the church at Ephesus was concerned about other things, but not about witnessing for the gospel, even though they did get their doctrine right. So now that we've understood these things, we're going to draw all of these things through to the letter today to the church at Smyrna. Because if we go back to Genesis and we look at the story of the Garden of Eden, after we hear about the tree of life, does anyone remember what comes next? What happens after we're introduced to the tree of life? The serpent makes an appearance. That is Satan. Then comes sin and death. And that brings us to our letter today 
to the church at Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was an ancient city in the Roman province of Asia. It was near the western coast of Asia Minor, about 40 miles north of Ephesus. So, like other cities in that location, they had beneficial port conditions. And so they ended up rising to prominence. It was a city with special loyalty to Rome. They had more than one temple built in honor of the Roman religion, and they paid homage to the emperor as if he were a god. Now, in order to get ahead in Smyrna, you needed to be part of this religious cult. If you wanted to improve your social situation, if you wanted to become wealthy, if you wanted to marry up, you needed to be part of this Roman cult. Now, most organized religions were exempt from worship. They had to worship the emperor, but they, off, they could offer worship to the emperor as a human and not as God. So the Jewish religion was one of these recognized religions, and for a time, Christianity was viewed as an offshoot to that, and they were also exempt from worshiping the emperor as anything other than a ruler. But eventually... Jewish groups made clear to authorities that Christianity was not part of Judaism. The Romans became suspicious, and because new religions weren't accepted into the empire, the Christians began to experience economic distress. This is why Christ referenced poverty in his letter. And so for the last thing before we actually dig into the meat of the letter, we need to understand what the word Smyrna means. It actually means myrrh. Most of us have heard of myrrh, Because when Christ was a young child, among the gifts that the wise men brought him was myrrh. And myrrh is a perfume or an incense and has medicinal properties. But it is also used as an embalming fluid. The root of this word is Semitic and it means bitter. So before we really even get into the meat of this letter, we already know that death is central to it. And Christ identifies himself as the first and the last, that is the possessor of eternity, and as the one who was dead and has come back to life. So after this, Christ has already set a tone that is quite somber for this church. But he says, I know what you have experienced. Not that he's heard it, but that he knows it because he's the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks uh, or the lampstands. He knows what's going on. In these churches. He says to them you're suffering from poverty. But you are rich. Now it's important to understand what is meant here. This is not poverty as we typically understand it. America is a very wealthy country. Despite many of the economic issues that happen here. Our country is quite wealthy. These were people who were beggars. The Greek word that's used here signifies begging or beggary. These people were so impoverished that they couldn't provide for themselves. Again, in order to participate in life in Smyrna, you had to worship the emperor as a god or have an exemption. They didn't have either. They weren't worshiping the emperor as god. They had no way to exempt themselves from those requirements, so they couldn't get jobs. They would be expelled from trade guilds. They were poor. Imagine for a second what it would feel like to be a parent, and some of you may have experienced this, But imagine being a parent and thinking you want to provide for your children and there's no way. Or a husband or a wife that wants to make sure the other is cared for and provided for. What if someone gets sick and there's no way to get good medical care? Imagine being in this situation and all you have to do is worship the emperor and everything will be fine. 
So Jesus says to them, I know your poverty. He understands what they're going through. And, but then he says, but you're actually rich. Well, that would come as a surprise to the people at Smyrna. They were begging. They didn't feel rich at all. Of course, Christ is talking about their spiritual condition. This word rich that he uses here is the same word he uses in the parables when he says, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Or when he says it's easier for the, a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than to enter into the kingdom of heaven. That word rich, meaning superabundance, material wealth, that is how Christ describes them, even though they are beggars. And so now we get a picture of what it was like for the church at Smyrna. And there's something else Christ observes in terms of the things that he knows. This is not just a problem that they are experiencing. These tribulations are happening because of someone. And that someone is Satan. Now, when Jesus talks about this synagogue of Satan, the people who claim to be Jewish and are not, it's important to understand that this is not anti-Semitism. Jesus is, in fact, Jewish, as are his ancestors, many of them. What he's saying here is there's a specific group of people that are speaking evil of and slandering the church at Smyrna. And referring to them as the synagogue of Satan serves a couple of purposes. One, he's identifying who is of God and who is not of God. And secondly, he's describing Satan. The Greek word here means adversary. So the, to the church, it looks like their problems are Rome, right? They're, they're disgusted maybe with the emperor or with local officials. They're tired of the various leaders who are not accepting of them in their own beliefs, right? But that's not who their problem is coming from. Uh, that, those aren't the people who, uh, from whom the problem is coming. It's coming from Satan. Now Christ goes on to say, do not fear Extreme suffering is coming. And the words here from Christ are quite tender. He's, I mean, think about how this church felt. Boy, we've got it rough. We're begging. We don't have enough. We're suffering. And they knew that they were suffering for Christ. But did they expect that they would be confronted with death? Christ tells them not to fear, even though extreme suffering is coming. See, the congregation isn't aware of this. And here's where the revelation comes in. Christ is explaining to them, actually what's coming is the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you may be tested. Hadn't they been tested enough? No. No, no. Because when, God, when we follow Christ, and he tells us plainly to follow him, we are to follow him all the way to the end. For him, that meant death. For most of us, it probably won't. But for the church at Smyrna at that time, it did and Christ tells them that the devil, again, the word here is interesting, diabolos, which is where we get our word diabolical. It's a cognate of sorts. It refers to a false accuser. So Christ actually is telling them by identifying Satan as the devil this time, he's saying the way you're going to get cast into prison is through false accusations. They're going to accuse you falsely and you will be cast into prison to be tested. Now this is in stark contrast to the church at Ephesus. Right? The church at Ephesus was not witnessing as they should have for the gospel. And Christ was threatening to remove the church if they didn't repent and do the first works. So that's what happens if you disobey Christ. Now, here's what happens if you obey him. Now you're going to be tested by being cast into prison and potentially die. Some of you will, as that's what his message was to the church at Smyrna. A tough choice. 
right? Always better, of course, to go with obedience. But this is what we've seen in scripture, right? We've seen Job and Daniel and others that were tested not in spite of their faith, but because of it. And so it's little surprise that we see the same thing here. What's interesting is that Christ goes on to say, you will have tribulation for 10 days. Now, does Christ mean it's actually only 10 days? Does, or does he mean that it's a short period of time? Or is it perhaps also a reference to Daniel? If you read the first chapter of Daniel, you will read that the king, an, uh, a pagan king, an ungodly king, had offered Daniel and other Hebrew uh, uh, Daniel and other friends of his, they were all Hebrew, they were offered meat from the king's table. Daniel and, the, and his friends had been taken captive, and the king had taken them, uh, offered them this meat. Right now, you have to think the meat would have been specially prepared, it would have been seasoned, it would have been well cooked, it would have provided a lot of nutrients for them. But Daniel and his friends did not want to compromise. So they said for 10 days, They would eat vegetables only and see how it turned out at the end. And of course, at the end of 10 days, they looked better than the people who had eaten the meat. They looked healthier. You know, obviously God had helped them. But the point of this is that Christ is through this encouraging the people in Smyrna not to compromise. Right? Because that's exactly what happened with Daniel. He was given the opportunity to compromise, to go along with the king, to get ahead that way. And he and his friends opted not to And uh, Christ is telling the church at Smyrna the same thing. And so the last piece on this little portion to remember is that in the parable of the sower, Christ taught that tribulation and persecution arise because of the word. The church at Smyrna doesn't understand why these things are happening to them. Again, they're probably not clear on who their true enemies are, which is why Christ has this letter written to them. But they are stewards of the word of God, and they were doing what they were supposed to do with it. So often we don't understand where problems and tribulations come from in our lives. They come from the word of God. Not because the word brings any trouble, but because the word of God is light and the forces of darkness work against it. And so Christ promises these things to the overcomers in Smyrna. He says, be faithful until death, and I will give you a crown of life. Now, only someone who has power over life and death, as Christ introduced himself in this letter, only someone who has power over life and death can promise this reward. But faithfulness until death is required. Nothing is said about receiving the crown of life if you fall short. An extraordinarily difficult test that he is giving the church at Smyrna. Not all of them were going to die, but some of them were. But the Lord has already accomplished this and expects it of his followers. This is how extreme it is. Christ goes on to say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As always, Christ is speaking in parables. You recall in the Gospels, he often would end his parables with this phrase. He that has an ear, let him hear. Because at the same time Christ is speaking, his words illuminate and obscure the truth, depending on the condition of our hearts. But if we hear, we can overcome. It's God who makes seeing eyes and hearing ears. And finally, Christ promises, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the second death is the final penalty for anyone whose name is not written in the book of life. That's for anyone who has not believed in Christ. It occurs when death and hell are thrown into the lake of fire, and everyone who rejects Christ will live there 
forever. So these are profound and serious consequences. So how are we to understand this? What is the meaning of this message for us? First is that Christ walks among and has intimate knowledge of the churches. At the beginning of Revelation, Christ is revealed as the great high priest walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, in the midst of the church. He's the only mediator between God and man and uniquely understands our position as human beings in this world. In the letters to the churches, Christ shows his deep understanding of the darkness that is in this world, of the allure of sin and Satan, and he warns us against compromising. The church is the light of the world. We need to stop obscuring it to avoid persecution and trouble. In each letter, Christ reminds us plainly that he will ultimately judge every single one of us, having power to give out rewards and to exact punishments. And I think when we listen to this story, this letter about the the church at Smyrna, but also the letter last week to the church at Ephesus, we have to look at what we're doing here at Bethany. What is our witness to the gospel? Do we talk to people about receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior? Is that a priority for us when we have important meetings? Is that discussed? How often do people come to Christ here? What are we thinking about? Are we in danger of what happened to the church at Ephesus where the lampstand was removed because it wasn't giving out light? There are many things we do well here. What about the gospel? The second message is that obedience brings persecution and suffering. Christ rebuked churches for their failures in in the previous letter and in others he will as well. But when a church does well, persecution and suffering are sure to follow. Christ lived in perfect obedience to God. And the result is he was challenged, harassed, targeted, and eventually killed. But he rose from the dead. All of these things happened to him because of his righteousness. And he said, follow me. So if we follow him, we should expect to receive the same things that he experienced. If we're not experiencing those things, are we following him? Now, if we go back to Genesis, as I've referenced from time to time throughout the sermon, you remember Cain and Abel. Both brought offerings before the Lord. Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not. What did Cain do? Ah, yes, killed his brother. Because his own works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. So these are the same things that have always happened. This is what the church of Smyrna is experiencing. They're doing what's right and those who do evil want to kill them. Because they are doing what's right. Doesn't mean that we'll be martyred for our faith. Although there are people in the world who will. Even today. But it does mean that we have to be serious about our business of following Christ. Preaching the truth of the gospel. Bringing the light of God into the world. Letting it show instead of hiding it. Because we're concerned about what other people think of us. And whether or not they will like us. Or whether or not we're fitting into a particular culture. That doesn't mean we go out of our way to be difficult or different or special. But we must preach the truth of the gospel. The third lesson that we have here is that Satan uses many tactics against God's people in disguise. The adversary who attacks Christ's followers is the devil. Although it will often look like people or groups or organizations. And the names that Christ gives us describe what our adversary is doing. He's opposing Christ's followers. He's making false accusations against Christ's followers. He hides himself so that the enemy appears to be someone else. 
His goal is to make the situation of believers so terrible that they, if possible, would walk away from Christ. And think of it this way. It's almost uh, similar in some ways to statecraft. Um, when groups of nations want to force another nation to comply with what they want them to do or with a particular behavior or action. They start out with diplomatic talks. Let's just have a discussion, photo op, make you look good, make you look prominent and important. That doesn't work? Economic sanctions. Now we're gonna cripple how your economy works so that the people there will rise up against you uh, if you don't comply. This is what nations do all of the time. It's part of politics and uh, I'm not opining on that piece of it or whether this is something people should do. I'm just talking to you about how nations work against other nations and it gives us insight into how Satan works against God's people. So you start out with diplomatic talks, that doesn't work, you escalate. Economic sanctions, that doesn't work, you escalate through more steps until you reach the final point of military intervention, right? That's usually the last resort because you don't want to put human, right, human life at risk. So Satan is doing this with the church at Smyrna. He's saying, ah, oh, the economic sanctions are here. We're really going to squeeze you. Sure, you don't want to follow Christ when I'm making your life miserable. You all are beggars now. And if that's not enough, now some of you are going to get put to death. What's it going to take for you to walk away? And so Christ is giving them insight into Satan's plans and ideas so that they will not compromise and won't give up. He reminds them that he has power over eternity so that whatever happens to them, he, they know that in him they're safe in the future. So that they know he has power over death, having died and risen from it. This is the reason he introduced the letter the way he did. Because the things he's asking of them, they need to know these things about him. And so the final message is that overcoming does not and will not look like we think it should. Overcoming the adversary's work is a victory. That's what this word overcome means in the Greek. It means victorious. But in this world, it is not going to look like we are victorious. Our victory is a reverse victory. In Smyrna, it's those who were condemned to die that died and ended up with the crown of life. Think about Christ on the cross. Did he look like a winner? He looked like a criminal who had been given the death penalty. You want to look like a winner? Don't follow Christ. Because if we're going to follow him, we end up with what he ended up with, which is infamy. With people despising him and mocking him, even those being crucified with him, thinking nothing of him. Except one smart one who ended up in paradise. But most people, when they see this, this is the shame of the gospel. This is what we want to avoid, looking bad, not seeming like we have it all together. We want the American dream and the American life. We don't want to look despised and rejected like our Lord. But we will not be treated better than him. If we do the works that he did, we will get the results that he received. And so to outsiders, the believers look like criminals had the death penalty. They look like nothing. If you want to become something in Christ, you, at some point you have to put away the concerns and the cares about what people think of you. Now that doesn't mean you throw out manners and start behaving crazily. But it does mean that you put those things aside. Live in truth and walk in truth no matter how people feel about you. And the last thing I will say is the one who inhabits eternity is the one who declares 
That those who remain faithful to Christ would receive eternal life. This is the perspective that's necessary to overcome. An eternal one. From this day on, start looking at life from an eternal perspective. Not just what am I getting in the short term. Not just five years down the road. Many of you have prepared well for retirement. You've thought through your investments. You have your financial advisors. You have worked through all of these things in this world. But how much of the preparation have you done on the spiritual side? How much preparation have you done for eternity and a life with Christ? These are the kinds of things that Christ wants us to think about here. And so in closing... I would like to ask if there is anyone here who has not received Christ as their Lord and Savior. If there is anyone here who is not 100% certain that when you die, you are going to heaven. If you have this much doubt, or this much doubt, I want to give you the opportunity to receive Christ. And for the ministers here, there's no shame in asking this. And it's nothing, there's no embarrassment if no one comes forward. It's 100% fine. The point of this is to make the gospel known and declared and give people the opportunity. If you want the New England culture model, you can come and see me outside afterward. <laughs> I'll be out in the hallway shaking hands and you can come up and whisper and no one has to know. That's the New England way. I'm from Stores, Connecticut. Um, so I'm familiar with our desire to be Separate, independent, and collected. That's who we are culturally. But we've got to make the gospel known. And give people the opportunity to believe in the one who died and rose again. So if there's anyone, thank you for that amen, I appreciate that. (laughs) Is there anyone who wants to receive Christ? I want to give it a minute or two. And even if not, you will always have that opportunity. And not just myself, but anyone on staff here would be happy to talk with you about receiving and believing in Christ so that you know it's available. Would you join me in a word of prayer? You are righteous, Father, and so gracious to all of us to give us the opportunity to hear your word and truth. You've given us a beautiful church, uh, the people first, loving, warm, and caring, a church where we love one another and care for one another and fellowship with one another. Father, you've also given us your word and your truth, and we are stewards of it. You've given us beautiful buildings and grounds, large parking lots and visibility even from the highways. Help us to leverage those things for your glory so that your word will go forth, that your light will shine. God, so that people will come to know you who have never known you. People who've never heard of you will hear of you and come to know you here. Give us grace to labor, Father, to work on your behalf and do the things that are pleasing in your sight. And as we go our separate ways this week, remind us of your words by your spirit and help us to be obedient to your commands. Be merciful to us, we pray, where we have fallen short and give us the strength and the courage to speak the truth of your word. May your will always be done in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.